Hey boys and girls, this is The Great Everything, the world's only podcast dedicated to art, donuts and transformation. I'm Patrick, your friendly neighbourhood former finance lawyer who saw the light and quit to dedicate my life to culture and philosophy, the greatest self-improvement tools of all, if we exclude a judicious use of methamphetamines. Speaking of methamphetamines, my favourite methamphetamine, methylene dioxymethamphetamine, also known as MDMA, also known as ecstasy, has, among its many wonderful effects, that of enhancing the impact of music on the senses. Speaking of music on the senses, you know who used to do music that impacted the senses? Richard Wagner, that's who. He was born on the 22nd of May, 1816. Yeah, I know, I could have just started by saying, hey, today I'm talking about Wagner. But wasn't this more fun? Richard Wagner was a German composer who many believe was the culmination of the Romantic period of German music that had begun with Beethoven's great symphonies. Wagner's an odd figure in music history because he didn't just want to be a composer, he wanted to be a philosopher. His music doesn't just have the aim of speaking to our emotions, but also of conveying a message, a whole socio-political, philosophical, religious and aesthetic worldview. Which is why he didn't even refer to his music as operas, but as Gesamtkunstwerk, total, universal artwork. And this probably explains why Wagner fans aren't just fans the same way you can love Mozart or Beethoven or any other musician really. They're more like devotees. It almost feels like a religious cult of sorts. Partly, but not entirely, because of this, Wagner is also very controversial. Not just because he was an absolute dick in his real life and because Hitler was a huge fan, but because his music is high culture par excellence in both the good and the bad sense. In the bad sense, particularly, even his fans would admit that the guy's music can be boring and long-winded, you know, high culture. The Italian composer Gioacchino Rossini, you know, the guy behind uh, William Tell, and also um, the Barber of Seville, famously, Figaro, Figaro, you know the guy. He said that Wagner has wonderful moments and dreadful quarters of an hour. It's true, he really does go on at times. But man, those wonderful moments, they're among the best music anyone has ever composed or heard. Music so powerful in impact, of such breathtaking beauty, that I'm frequently amazed that a, that a human being could come up with it. So he's worth getting into, at least a little. I want to help with that by sharing just a couple of those great musical moments with, of course, some context as to what makes them so amazing. So we're going to take a little look at Wagner's most influential opera, Tristan und Isolde, and a musical trick that is frequently associated with him that has become a bit of a staple of our modern music, the leitmotif. But before we move on to these things, I'm going to share with you a short segment I did a year or so ago on the contrast between Wagner the man and Wagner the artist. The thing I find most powerful about art is that it connects us to what makes us truly great. It's easy to get depressed by the state of mankind when we look out the window and we see this general lack of warmth in the world. From people stepping over the homeless guy on the pavement or being rude in traffic, arguments on Twitter, all the way up to actual violence and war. Yet art reminds us that it's not all bad. That our ape gene might drive us to horrible cruelty, but we have a god gene within us too. 
which allows us to create something beautiful, something that can reach out over the course of centuries to touch hearts today. Art reminds us that although we have darkness within us, we also have light. But what if those two things were pushed to the extreme in a single person? What if one of the greatest artists who ever lived were also a profoundly despicable human? Would you be able to look past that artist's moral darkness to find the light within his work? The German composer Richard Wagner, born today in 1813, forces us to ask precisely that question because he was a revolutionary, a visionary genius and an experimentalist whose work came from totally outside the tradition of any music ever made before. But the sources agree that he was a sexist, a racist, a rabid nationalist, a passionate anti-Semite, a liar, a betrayer to his friends, a tyrant to his wives, and almost entirely dishonest. And if that's not enough, his biggest fan was Adolf Hitler, to whom he was arguably the main inspiration. In short, the more you know about Wagner's ideas and his life, the less you're going to like him. Yet should that matter? Because try as I might, I just can't hate him. And how could I when he's responsible for music so resonant and when his music has enriched my life so much and raise the bar so high in my understanding of human potential and what we can achieve. There's some part of me that just can't believe that someone who can create moments of such aching beauty and wonder can be completely devoid of human warmth and compassion. And maybe that's just me. But I can tell you, it's a mindset that, at least when it comes to Wagner, certainly makes me happier and perhaps we should all try to apply it not just to artists but to everyone else around us just this not to forget the darkness within but to focus on the light Wow, now that's music. If you ever want to hear that again, it's the opening of Wagner's famous ring cycle, Rheingold. This piece is known as the Vorspiel, conducted by Scholti with the Vienna Philharmonic. So moving on to today's topic, Wagner and the Tristan chord. As I was saying, Wagner was extremely influential. He brought about a number of technical innovations that paved the way for 20th century music. For instance, you have these weird tonal shifts, kind of like uh, instead of the music progressing forward in the traditional classical style, it's almost like it moves sideways, changing the atmosphere. A bit like, imagine an old movie scene where suddenly the mood shifts and the slightly dissonant score is telling us that something isn't quite right. Right there. That's the opening of the opera or music drama Tristan und Isolde and the famous Tristan chord that we'll be looking at. Film music actually is really relevant here because to my untrained ear, the first thing that jumps to my attention when I listen to Wagner, compared to those who came before of course, is that his music sounds more like a movie soundtrack than classical music. 
And a big part of that is his use of the leitmotif. A leitmotif is a tiny bit of music, maybe a short melody or a chord or a harmony, which is meant to be associated with a character or an idea or an emotion or even an object. So with Wagner, you'll have these little leitmotifs that mean the character Siegmund or love or fire or this magical sword. And whenever you hear that leitmotif, that's what you should be thinking about. Even if the character or the object isn't on stage or the idea isn't explicitly mentioned in the dialogue, in the, well, singing in this case. And that's a bit like film music. The philosopher Adorno wrote about Wagner's leitmotifs that they lead directly to cinema music, where the sole function of the leitmotif is to announce heroes or situations so as to allow the audience to orient itself more easily. So an easy example is Star Wars, right? So if it's a scene with Luke and Leia and the music suddenly shifts to you know that we're talking about the Empire. Even if the Empire isn't on screen, even if there's no stormtroopers there, even if Darth Vader's long dead, it doesn't matter. The theme is calling that concept to attention. So it's a huge influence Wagner had in that respect because he popularized this use of the leitmotif. But let's look a little at Tristan und Isolde itself, because what Wagner did here with one particular leitmotif is, well, dope as fuck, even if you're not into classical music. Tristan und Isolde is one of the most influential works of the 19th century, second only to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, I'd say. And it's a story about love transcending death. I want you to keep that in mind. The plot is based on a medieval legend. You have Isolde, an Irish princess, and she's a prisoner on a ship. And she's being shipped off to marry Mark, the King of Cornwall. Her captor is the king's nephew, Tristan. Now, Isolde isn't happy about any of this. It's a forced marriage and she's a prisoner. So she tells her trusty maid her story in what kind of works as an opera version of a flashback. Because we start on the boat and we're going to learn how she got there. So years before, Isolde's previous boyfriend had just been killed in a sword fight. Shortly after that, Isolde stumbles across a wounded warrior going by the name of Tantris. Yes, is Tristan backwards. So Isolde is kind of like a witch, you know? You could say she's a witch. She knows how to make potions and stuff. So she uses her potions to heal this uh, stranger, Tantris. But as she does so, she discovers that Tantris is actually Tristan, the man who killed her boyfriend. So she decides to get revenge to kill him and she raises her sword. But as she does so, Tristan doesn't look at the sword in fear, but just gazes into her eyes. And as he does so, it stirs something within her. We kind of all know what that means. But the point is, she can't go through with it. She can't kill him. So she lets him go on the condition that he promised to never come back. But of course, years later, he does come back to take her off to be married against her will. So now we're on the boat and Isolde is pissed. So she challenges Tristan to come on deck and have a drink with her, a drink of atonement to wash away past grievances and make peace. Now, Tristan knows what's up. He knows that this isn't some ordinary drink. He knows she's a witch, too, who dabbles with potions, right? He's been healed by one of her potions before. So he understands that what Isolde really wants is to get revenge and to kill him with poison. But his honor is at stake here. So he goes ahead and he drinks from the cup that she gives him. And as soon as he does... Isolde rips the cup from his hand and she cries, I drink to you. And she takes a big swig in what I suppose is a suicidal move. She's avenged her lover, her work is done, and besides, she doesn't want to marry this King Mark anyway. So now they're both going to die. Except nothing happens. I mean, they expected to die, but they're still there. 
so they look at each other in shock, and all they can do is call out each other's name. Tristan is old. And we realize that far from dying, they have fallen in love. After a bit, Isolde asks her maid, who gave her the potion, what's happened? And the maid says that rather than making poison, she gave Isolde a love potion instead. Now, in the opera, this is an open question. It's kind of more implied in the music than spoken in the dialogue. The question is, did the maid actually give Isolde a love potion? Or instead, did she just give her a placebo? And the expectation of death, the fact that both Tristan and Isolde believed that they were going to die, worked to strip away all the bullshit and leave only the truth behind. The truth that was revealed all those years ago when Tristan gazed into Isolde's eyes and she spared his life. Were they in love all along? A love only revealed by the prospect of death? And I think you could argue that Wagner's answer is yes. Because for the whole opera, Tristan and Isolde declare their love to each other, but they never consummate it. They never have sex. But following a series of betrayals and misunderstandings that I won't get into, Tristan ends up getting mortally wounded. And in the finale, a beautiful piece known as the Liebestod, Love in Death, as Isolde looks upon Tristan's dying body, she sees him as transfigured like Christ. And in a moment of orgasmic ecstasy, and I use the term purposefully, she too dies to be finally united with her lover in death. Let's take a quick look as to how Wagner manages to convey all this using leitmotifs, because I swear it is fascinating. The opera opens with that bit of music I got you to listen to at the beginning, you know, the, the creepy film music. What's going on here? Well, we have a leitmotif that Wagner wants us to associate with drinking and death. Because remember, the drink Tristan and Isolde had was meant to be poison. So first it goes up, like a cup to the lips. And then it comes back down, like a potion sliding down the throat. But hear how it doesn't end on just the down note. There's a weird dissonance introduced. This melody isn't nice and complete, you know, packaged with a little bow tie. It's unstable. It's... something's not quite right. And it introduces an upward motif that is kind of like the opposite of the downward drink-death motif. And we're meant to see this as symbolizing a sense of desire or arousal. So the drink-death motif is also the love motif. And it's significant that the last note of the downward motif is also the first of this upward desire motif. We know that orgasm has often been compared to death. So could it be perhaps that to Wagner, death is the only way love can be truly satisfied? It would seem so. If we think to how, late in the opera, the expectation of death will awaken their love, and how in the finale, in the Liebestod, in death, their love will finally be consummated. What's significant here is that this upward desire-love motif is also left unresolved, unfinished. Again, no little bow tie on the package. 
you feel that, you're like, ah, oh, we need closure. And Wagner repeats this a few times, and every time he denies us that closure, and we're left hanging, kind of like a musical version of Blue Balls. And guess what? We're going to stay that way for four hours, because only in the very last note of the Liebestod and the whole opera will this desire motif and the sexual tension reach its resolution or climax. We'll get there in a second, but first I just want you to listen to a couple of the other occurrences of these motifs. First, the drink-death motif from the start of the opera. Now, in the scene where Tristan drinks and Isolde rips it from him, and she shouts, Ich trink sie dir. I drink to you. You hear that? It's the same motif from the start, so suddenly, at this point, we understand what that was meant to mean. So far we didn't, it was just music, right? But now we understand what it's meant to be associated with, with that drink, with that death potion. And here, because of what the characters and we are expecting, it's all very big, it's dramatic, it's like death. Except, out of the drink and death music, ich trink sie dir, the longing, the desire is awakened but still confused and unresolved. And we'll hear this same trick used time and time again throughout the opera. Wagner is teasing us, and every time he denies us that closure, he defers it. Ah, it's so frustrating! But let me tell you, just like Christians will tell you about sex and marriage, it's worth the wait. Wagner really knows what he's doing. I'm just going to quote from Wikipedia here, shamelessly. The long-awaited completion of this cadence series arrives only in the finale, Liebestod, Love, Death, during which the musical resolution coincides with the moment of Isolde's death. So, and this is me again now, the resolution is not just spiritual and sexual release through death, but also a musical release of tension that had remained unresolved throughout the whole story. Let's hear it again. First on my garage band piano. Now in the overture to the opera. And now in the finale. So I'll leave you to that in a second, and I'm going to actually just play for you the last minute of the opera so you can get the full impact of the finale in all its glory. I just want to get through that there's no takeaway here. I don't expect you to suddenly go off and buy a bunch of Wagner recordings. All I want is to just give you a little taste of something truly extraordinary that you may never have really found the time to dive into. A taste, though, is all it takes sometimes. Because maybe the next time you randomly come across some Wagner, maybe as part of a movie like Apocalypse Now, instead of just moving on, you might stop and listen. Give him a few minutes of your time, as you did just now. You know when they say that certain difficult things, especially in art, are an acquired taste? Well, guess what? This is how you acquire that taste. A little bit at a time. So now, I'll just leave you to the finale of Tristan and Isolde, her final dying words, and the 
orgasmic climax of her life and love and the opera itself. Enjoy. <laughs> 